0: Well, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here. I know it's a holiday weekend. Um, Hopefully you had a great time with your friends, with your family, uh, taking time to remember God's graciousness towards us, towards you, uh, in anticipation for what he is going to do in your lives and in our lives and in the life of his church in the coming year and years to come. Um, This morning, we are going to begin a new series that we are calling the Songs of the Story, Um, and I'm going to probably ask a lot of questions. I'm going to be setting the stage this morning for the weeks to come, and so throughout the sermon, I'll be asking questions because <laughs> I want us to get our hearts right. I want us to take the time to examine our hearts going into this season because, well, let me start with a question. Do you know of any concentrated period of time, any other time in your life throughout a year, and we're in four weeks, something like the Christmas season can call, cause normal, rational People to act in such foolish and strange ways? I mean, do you know of any other time in the year or anything besides Christmas that has the power to get normal people to act in very strange ways? I mean, for example, who, who throughout the year outside of Christmas goes outside of their house to cut down a tree that lives outside and bring that tree inside where you take up space in your home and then decorate it with lights things? What other time in the year do normal rational people go outside and cut down trees to live outside and bring them inside and decorate them? What other time of the year besides Christmas do normal child worshiping people like Americans willingly take their child to sit in the lap of some strange older man asking him for presents while he gives them candy? I don't know if you ever thought about that. I mean, what other time of the year besides Christmas has the power to Take rational, normal people and get them to act in such strange and odd ways. You know, over $3.8 billion will be spent this year in America in the middle of a recession on Christmas decorations? On holiday decorations? It's unbelievable. Inflatable Santa Clauses on Harley Davidson's out in the lawn. <laughs> Penguins, igloos. I mean, that's just my block. Um, you know, let me let me say this. I love Christmas. Um, I love the Christmas season. Um, it's very difficult to not get caught up in the chaos and the excitement and the spirit of Christmas, at least as our culture defines it. I mean, it's hard to not get caught up in the consumeristic spirit of celebrating what we can actually spend and how much we can actually buy. It's hard to not get caught up in all of that. But here's here's my hope for the next four weeks in the in the power of the Christmas season, the four weeks of the year that have power like no other period of time in our life throughout the year. I want us to do what we can do to set our hearts right so that we can be a people who can enjoy the spirit of Christmas, the excitement of Christmas, the time of the season of Christmas, but maybe experience it in a new way. Maybe push back, the, push back against the shallow end of the spectrum. Enjoy the excitement, enjoy the passion, but experience the depth of what the season is really meant to cause and boil up and excite in our souls. That's my hope. That's our prayer as we go through the next four weeks. Because not only does this week mark the beginning of the strangest four-week period in the life of an American, it also marks the four-week period that the church calls the Advent season. I mean, historically, like we talked about last week, when God instituted feasts and festivals in the life of his church, that they would remember his works and his grace towards them throughout the year and celebrate it, the historical church has also remembered God's work in their life, and they've done that by creating a calendar, and that calendar officially kicks off. If you've come from a a more mainline liturgical church in the way you grew up, or you grew up Catholic, you're probably familiar with this, but the first Sunday, well, four Sundays before Christmas, leading to the last Sunday before Christmas, is the season of Advent, When the church remembers the anticipation of God's people Israel in their hopes and their anxiousness and their anxiety awaiting this Savior, this Messiah, this King, this warrior who would come free them from the oppression and the slavery that they were living in and set them right as God's people. He would make right what had gone so terribly wrong and God's people waited in eager anticipation for this time and the season of Advent is a time when the church historically remembers the anticipation of God's people culminating in the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the great Christmas story and the anticipation that we still live with for his final consummation of his kingdom among us. When for all of eternity the lame will walk and the deaf will hear and the blind will see. What we still Eagerly long for and await in an eternity, we celebrate in this Advent season. And so, this four week period for our life in this church is a time when I, I pray that we'll be able to set our hearts right on what God has done in our lives, what He has done through His people, what the story is calling us to. And we're going to do it by looking at the songs of the Nativity story, the songs of the Christmas story. You know, there, there are no other times throughout the year when there's as beautiful a music as a Christmas time. Now, I don't know why we only sing Christmas songs at Christmas because they're some of the most Christ-centered songs that we'll sing all year. But you know, the songs that we sing here and we'll be singing in the next couple of weeks, they weren't the first. The gospel writer Luke actually records four songs surrounding the birth of Jesus. When this long-awaited promise of fulfillment finally was coming to pass in the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to a very poor teenage girl named Mary that we'll look at today, what you see in the gospel of Luke is God's people breaking out in song. It's Allie McBeal, high school musical-like. It's, this is what God has done and therefore I sing. And I praise. And it's hard to pick up sometimes in our Bibles, but the birth of Jesus is surrounded by songs. People celebrate and praise towards what God has done and what God will do. There's four major songs, one sung by Mary, then one sung by Zechariah, then another song sung by the angels in the presence of the shepherds, and then another song by the prophet Simeon in the temple when Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, took him to be dedicated towards God. He breaks out in song at the sight of finally seeing his long-awaited Savior, and so the next four weeks, where you are going to actually look at these songs of the season, and my hope is that as we do this, we will begin to see what God is drawing our hearts and our attentions to through these songs. How can the character of these people's hearts and the context of the praise that they sing change the way that we understand the Christmas season? These are their Christmas songs. These are their songs of the birth of the Savior. How can their songs transform the way that we experience this season? That's what I want us to look at over the next four weeks. And maybe by God's grace, as we look at our hearts and the character of our hearts and the content of our praise, in contrast to the character of their hearts and the contrast of what they praise, God, by his grace, will draw our hearts out of the shallow end of the season and we won't get stuck in the chaos in the mire. But we'll experience maybe for the first time or maybe again in a long time the real spirit of what God is doing and what we are so eagerly awaiting in the end and what He so graciously did for us thousands of years ago in sending His Son. Um, So this morning we are going to start and we're going to look at the first song, the Song of Mary, or, or historically called the Magnificat. But before we can actually unpack the Song of Mary, to set the stage for Mary's song, and to set the stage for the weeks to come, you have to actually understand the story that Mary's song is a part of. And to understand the story of the Nativity that Mary's song is a part of, you have to understand the story that the Nativity is a part of. So until you understand the larger story that the story of Jesus' birth is a part of, you won't really understand what Mary is singing about and how to understand what brings her such joy. So this morning as we start, we're going to start with the larger story. And we're going to find ourselves boiling down to the story of the Nativity And we're going to look and see Mary's praise, Mary's song of joy in response to what God has done in her life and is about to do through her child. So let me pray for us because we do not have much time um, and we have lots to do. Um, Father, thank you for this opportunity. Um, It is a joy, it is an honor, and it's a privilege to open up your word and to surrender my soul to your word. May we all surrender our hearts and our wills to your word. And by your grace, will you change the character of our heart? Will you change and shape the content of our praise? May we experience the deep and profound springs of living joy that exist in the Christmas season and escape the shallow end of the pool. Lord, it's by your grace and your mercy that this can happen, and we ask this for your namesake, that you would be made much of in our life this Christmas season. Amen. So here's the story. We'll get started this way. In the beginning, we're going to go back that far you got to go back that far to understand what Mary's about to talk about the triune god of the universe created everything that is and he created everything that ever will come into being and you know what he said he said it's all good everything that is everything that he created he looked at it and he said it's all good And everything that he created and that he proclaimed was good was meant to roll back, to reflect, to magnify glory and praise to God. Its goodness was never meant to terminate on itself. And so what that means is that in the garden, before the fall, when Adam and Eve ate food, as they ate and enjoyed the gift that God had given them, their hearts would break out in praise. They would say, what a creative and merciful God. How great are you, Lord, for giving us this to experience. That food was never meant to terminate on itself and its own goodness. It was meant to spring up in praise towards God for who he is and what he has done. The same way with drinks. They would have some of the best wine that was ever created in all of eternity before the fall. And as they enjoyed the bounty of God's blessing, it would bubble out of their lives in praise, and they would say, what a wise and merciful and loving God to think of this and create this and give it to us. And he gave them relationships so that they could enjoy one another as God's gift to them. And as Adam and Eve would relate to one another and live with one another, their lives together would bring up praise and worship towards God for such a loving and gracious God as to give them one like themselves that they could enjoy the presence of that goodness of all that God had created. In his wisdom and in his sovereignty was meant to roll back towards him in praise. It was never meant to terminate on itself. But then the fall. And it all fell apart. All that God was weaving together in the beginning became unraveled. The fall fractured all that God had created as we were created by God to worship him. It's an aspect of our creation. We were created by God as worshipers. We were created by God to enjoy and experience all that he created and called good so that it would drive us and compel us to praise for him for what he has done. We were created to worship God. That's what we were created for. Before worship ever is an activity in our life, it's an identity that we have to understand and own. We were created by God to worship him in his goodness, in his greatness, in his power, in his praise. But in the fall, we took that worship upon ourselves. And in the deepest and most profoundest of dark exchanges, mankind exchanged the worship of God for the worship of the created order. Mankind exchanged the worship of God, and that creation that was good no longer compelled them towards praise to God, but they began to trust themselves and worship the creation instead of the creator, Paul said in Romans 1, and a fracture came in all that God had created, and food no longer rolled up into praise before God for his wisdom and his provision. It became gluttony, or at worst, indifference. Not even acknowledging God's act and his graciousness in providing it. Drinks no longer became a a moment of worship and celebration for God's wisdom and his mercy. They became drunkenness or at worst indifference. Not even acknowledging God's graciousness and provision for giving that. Relationships became codependent and broken and dysfunctional. At worst indifferent towards God's graciousness and mercy towards us in giving us those things. And God eventually grew tired of it all. Tired of the disregard, tired of the sin. And he washed it all away except for one man and his family, Noah and a set of all the animals that he had created, who he preserved on the ark. And after the waters washed away and that began to reside, it started all over again. And what you see in the Old Testament is the living out of God's grace and God's mercy in the context of man's sin and man's disregard. And God comes to a man named Abram. We're gonna go fast through the story now. And he comes to Abram and he says, you know what, I am gonna take you and out of you, you and your wife who are too old to actually bear children, I'm actually gonna open her womb. And through you, I'm gonna create a people. I'm going to give you a family, and not just a family, but a people. And through your people, all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. I'm going to make a covenant of grace with you that I will never leave you and never forsake you, that I will always do good for you, that my name might be made known throughout the nations, that all people will be blessed by you because of my provision and my grace towards you. And God began to work in his people, Israel, through the family of Abraham, through the rest of the Old Testament. And you see the context of God's grace and God's mercy and God's initiative towards his people in the context of their rebellion and their disregard and their sin, and God institutes prophets who come in the midst of the people's rebellion and begin to cry out of God's promise, cry out of God's covenant, remind God's people of their sin, remind God's people of their promise, and they begin to hope for this long-awaited warrior who God said would come and who would defeat their enemies, who would restore them to their rightful place, and this warrior would ultimately become their king. And this king would rule over them in a kingdom that would last for eternity. And his kingdom would be not like any other kingdom that they'd ever experienced. In this kingdom, that king who was their warrior, the deaf would hear. The blind would see. The lame would walk. The hungry would be fed. And they would be restored as God's people in the place that God has promised under his loving, gracious rule. And the people were awaiting this long-awaited king who would do battle on their behalf. And unlike any other king or warrior they had ever seen, he would also be their servant. And this king would serve his people. He would love his people. He would be gracious towards his people. He would not exploit his people, but he would serve his people. And God's people Israel longed and hoped and awaited for this coming Savior, this king, this warrior, this servant who would restore them to their right place before God and who would begin to make right all of the fall had broken. All of the fall had begun to unravel. And that is the hope that pervades the entire story of the Old Testament. That's the long-awaited hope that all of God's people had throughout the entire story of the Old Testament. And you get to the end, and here's what happens. Silence. For all of, for centuries, let's just put it that way, and for generations, God had spoken to his people directly or to his people through kings or prophets that he had called and appointed to represent him before his people and then all of a sudden out of nowhere in the midst of this hope and anticipation as the kingdom is divided and the people are brought into slavery and they're wondering what in the world is going on when is this king coming when is this warrior going to defeat these enemies when is this servant going to come and serve us and restore us to our rightful place we're still blind we're still deaf we're still lame we're still hungry what is going to happen when is it coming and then radio silence nothing nothing from God for some 400 years. And all along, God is beginning to set the stage. He's finalizing the pieces of the stage that need to be put in place for him to come and bring the fulfillment of the promise that he had spoken about generations before to Abraham and generations before to Adam and Eve immediately after they they fell, when he promised one day one would come who would do battle on their behalf and defeat their enemy on their behalf. And that's where we begin to pick up the story that we're going to begin to look at this week with Mary and the Nativity. God fulfills his promise to his people in some of the most unexpected ways. Nothing more unexpected of the people of Israel than this great king and this great warrior and this great servant coming to a very poor and marginalized teenage girl. Nothing more unexpected than this king who would rule over their empire and their land and this warrior who would defeat all their enemies would do that, not through the power of a sword and a horse, but through humility and poverty. Nothing more unexpected than the way that God would fulfill this promise to his people, but this is what happens. And so you get to pick up the story in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick it up and we're going to get to Mary's story. I promise you'll see. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, it's actually not going to come up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. What's going to come up is Mary's song, but we've got to get there. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now 400 years, nothing. Nothing from God. And all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel appears to this girl, some 13, 14, or 15 years old in a little rural town called Nazareth, and he says, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled, and you could expect so. And she said, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. He's being silent. Now, Gabriel, we know what Gabriel did in the Old Testament sometimes. We know not all of the visits of the angels of the Lord were exciting and beneficial, And she tried to discern what kind of greeting is this, that Gabriel would be here, and he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Here's this promise now. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The king, the warrior, he's coming. He's going to be in your womb. Mary's natural response, well, how will this happen? how will this actually be she says since i'm a virgin verse 34 and gabriel answers her and basically says, it's going to be a miracle here's what's going to happen the holy spirit is going to overwhelm you and the holy spirit is going to cause you to conceive and by a process that we have never experienced in the history of mankind before or after a teenage virgin actually becomes pregnant with a child and most of the time when we study Mary and we read this story, we tend to, to tend to look at Mary and talk about Mary and read her songs and read her story and look at the faith of Mary and the example of Mary and, and how we should be more faithful and more hopeful like Mary in our life. But as we go through this story and we go through the songs in the weeks to come, I want us not so much to focus on the faith of the character, but on the content of their faithfulness. What was Mary so hopeful for? What brought Mary such faith and such Resolve and Mary responds and and says, "Let it be. Let it be." And Gabriel tells Mary that her cousin Elizabeth, who unlike her is not a young teenage virgin, but a woman whose past childbearing years is also going to conceive. She also is pregnant with a child. And Mary gets excited and she goes to go visit her sister Elizabeth. And we'll have to speed through this part. You get to verse thirty-nine. In those days, Mary arose, and she went with haste into the hill country to a town called Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth, her cousin. Now, just read the story. This happens every time I preach in the Gospels. Slow down and read the story. 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, decides to go visit her cousin who's pregnant now, who's past childbearing years. A 13, 14, 15-year-old girl just doesn't get on a donkey and travel to the hill country to this other town because it's an unsafe trip. It's a dangerous trip. But this is what Mary does out of joy, excitement, fear. We don't know. But she gets on a donkey. She packs her stuff without Joseph, without any kind of people to protect her, to go with her. She goes to see Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How would Elizabeth even know she was pregnant? Anything about that? No internet, no email, no text messaging. Holy Spirit. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now here's the thing, what we're going to look at this morning, quickly, is Mary's response to Elizabeth's response to her pregnancy. And the first thing I want you to see is how unexpected her response is. I mean, I want you to really read this story and I want you to think about Mary. Mary comes in the midst of this predicament, pregnant now by the Holy Spirit, betrothed to Joseph. They weren't fully married yet. The custom in the first century was a little bit different than ours that even once someone was engaged to be married, they would have a period called betrothal where they would have actually made public vows before friends and family to commit themselves to one another. But the intimacy of that relationship had not been consummated quite yet. There was this period where they were technically married, held to the vows that they had made, but yet not fully married yet. And so here she is, a virgin, betrothed to this man Joseph pregnant man what's got to be going on in her brain jo, Mary Elizabeth says blessed are you and you've got to think what's Mary's natural response blessed blessed have you thought about what it would be like for me back there I mean have you thought about what it's going to be like for me when I go home I and mean, what's my family going to think How's my family going to actually respond? Uh, Okay, mom, dad, Gabriel actually showed up to me. And he said, the Holy Spirit is going to overwhelm me and I'm going to be pregnant. That's what happened, really, I promise. You see, when she goes back home, it's going to have been three or four months. Bellies grow. She can't really hide what's happening in her body. And she's going to explain it to her family the way that God had told her through Gabriel that she was going to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and her family was going to have to look at her and just shake their heads blessed? What about Joseph? I mean, what's he going to do? Blessed, Elizabeth? How am I going to explain this to Joseph? How in the world is Joseph going to actually believe that the Holy Spirit has overwhelmed me and caused me to be pregnant? Did you skip temple growing up, Elizabeth? Do you not know that I can go home and Joseph can look at me and he can call me an adulterer and he would have all cause to do so because my story just, who's going to believe that? And as an adulterer who's betrothed to him, Joseph has all the right among the law to drag me out into the middle of the city center with all the men of the town to strip me naked, to spit on me, and to stone me to death. As an example to everyone else in town. Do you, blessed Elizabeth, really? Wouldn't that be Mary's, or at least your, natural response? What about my reputation? Now, what are people going to think? So he doesn't stone me. So he goes along and marries me. I'm always going to be that woman who cheated on him, and my son is always going to be the son of a adulterer. What about my reputation? Well, forget about all that. What about the general pressure that she must be feeling? 13, 14, 15 years old, pregnant. If that isn't enough pressure, she's pregnant with the Son of God. Have you thought about that? She's pregnant with the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah, the savior of his people. It's in her womb. She's going to have to get nine months, have that baby, and then raise him. Have you thought about what's going on in her mind? Elizabeth says, blessed. And my natural thought is, what in the world would Mary actually say? What we see is not what I would expect. And what you see is the first of four songs. Mary is going to respond to Elizabeth and respond to this situation with praise. Of all the things that Mary has to be consumed with, of all the things that she has to worry about, of all the anxieties that could be running through in her mind, not the least of which is being pregnant with the Son of God, Mary is going to respond to this circumstance in worship. And as we go through this story and go through the songs in the next few weeks, I want us to think not so much about how is Mary a great example to our faith, and she is. It is right and good and well to understand that. But how is the character of her heart? What is the content of her worship? And how can God use that to direct the character of our heart going into the Christmas season? This is her Christmas song. How can the content of her worship shape the content of ours through this season? Verse 46, I'm going to read her song, and then we will uh, we'll talk about it. Verse 46, Mary said, this is her response, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought low the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So let me ask. What characterizes your heart going into this Christmas season? What is your heart characterized by going into this Christmas season? Is it characterized by joy? Listen to this. Verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We could take the entire Advent season to talk about these two verses right here, this first stanza of her song. But here is the characterization of Mary's heart. Here is what characterizes her heart before God this first Christmas season. My soul my innermost being, the essence of who you have created me to be and who I am desires to magnify my Lord. In the midst of all the chaos, all the circumstance, all the anxiety, all the worry, Mary's heart exists to magnify her Lord. I wish we had the time to look at the words that Mary chose to use by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Her soul desires to magnify the Lord. When we think of magnify, we think of a magnifying glass that we carry over things that are too little for us to see, and it makes them bigger so that we understand what they are. But in the Bible, when the Bible talks about our souls or our hearts or the praise of our mouth, magnifying God, magnifying the glory of the Lord. It's not talking about magnification the way we do with a magnifying glass or a microscope. It's talking about magnification, the way that we magnify things with something like a telescope. When you walk out in the night sky and all that you see up there is twinkling and bright and relatively insignificant because of its size, and you tend to disregard the the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty of the sky until you get a telescope, especially a really high-powered telescope. And you begin to look up into the sky and those things that had seemed so insignificant, those things that had seemed like twinkling little Christmas lights up in the sky are become, for the first time in your eyes, seen for what they really are, these enormous flaming balls of fire that are larger than the earth itself and brighter than the human eye can actually stand before All of a sudden, your perspective changes. The stars never change, but the way you see them changes. This is what the Bible is talking about whenever it talks about magnifying God. It's not talking about making God bigger than he actually is because he's so small and insignificant. It's talking about taking the grandeur and the majesty of God for who he is and magnifying it in such a way that we see it for what it really is for the first time. Mary's soul is characterized this first Christmas season first and foremost by a desire to make God as large as he is, to see him for all that he is. John Owen, one of my, my favorite writers, said, we must not allow ourselves to be satisfied with vague ideas of God, which present nothing of his glory to our minds. Mary doesn't just say, I magnify God, but my soul exists. My soul is characterized by a desire to magnify my Lord. The one who is greater than all things. The one who is above all circumstances. The one who is bigger than all problems. The one who is bigger than all sorrows and all successes. My soul exists to magnify the Lord. Think of what comfort that would bring Mary. All that she had to face. All the things we talked about a minute ago, those are real. Those are real circumstances Mary had to face, real perceptions she had to deal with, real problems that were going to face her when she returned back to Nazareth. But here's the characterization of Mary's soul. Here's what makes up the essence of who she is. In the midst of all of this, she desires to magnify her Lord who sits above all things, even these problems, even these circumstances. Mary's chief desire was to make much of God. That's her heart at Christmas. What's your heart at Christmas? What's your heart characterized by this holiday season? What does your heart desire to make much of? What does your soul desire to see exalted? Your name, your cause, your reputation, your ability to provide? What's your heart characterized by at Christmas? If we, if we had time, we could take a whole week to look at the next verse and, and understand what Mary is saying when she said, not only does her soul magnify the Lord, but her spirit rejoices In God, her Savior, not just some vague idea of God that brings joy into her soul that she is thankful for, like we talked about last week, as she understands the depth of her need and it causes joy and gratitude to explode in her heart. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about rejoicing, we take the time to unpack what it is about this Savior that brings joy to her heart, that causes rejoicing to fall on her lips. But the first thing you've got to see is that Mary understood her need for a Savior And contrary to our Catholic brothers and sisters understanding of Mary, Mary was not a co-redemptress with Jesus. One of the clearest, most beautiful things that Mary pours out in the beginning of the song is that she understands her need for a savior. God in his graciousness by the Holy Spirit caused Mary to understand that the one that was gonna be in her womb would be the one who would save her from her sins. And she was desperately in need of that same redemption that all of us were in need of. Is there anything greater to be thankful for, for gratitude to spring up in our soul for and bust out in rejoicing in our spirit during the Christmas season than God's ultimate fulfillment of his promise to his people to save them from their sins. To be their God forever, to be that king who sits over a kingdom that will know no end and that is unlike any other kingdom that has ever existed. That is what brings Mary's soul to song to rejoice. This baby in her womb would in 33 years, be her savior. And As you read it this Christmas season and you read the stories, and I hope you will, think about what that must have felt like. By God's Holy Spirit, Mary recognizes the need she has for a savior and the one that's in her womb would be the one who would come and save all of God's people from her sins. But 33 years later, she'd be at that foot of the cross not just celebrating, not just recognizing what God is doing, but watching her own son die. This is the reality that Mary lived with. Think about, think about what that must have produced in her heart. Mary, by God's grace, knew her need, and she celebrated God's fulfillment of it in his sending of the Savior to save not only Israel but her from her sins. That is a snapshot of Mary's heart. That's just a peek, a glance at what characterized Mary's heart this first Christmas, her joy her praise, are rooted in who God is and what he has done. That's just biblical worship. That's just worship that Mary had learned all of her life, going to the temple, singing the Psalms, hearing the stories. And when this moment comes, her heart breaks out in praise to God, not only for who he is specifically, but what he has done for her and what he will do for his people. And that's where the song continues to go. Mary begins now to unpack what God has done for her and what he will do for his people through this baby that is in her belly and what is actually the ground or the foundation for her desire to magnify her Lord, to rejoice in her Savior. And so I'll ask you a second question. This Christmas season, what does your heart rejoice in? And what brings joy to your heart? When you think about going into the Christmas season and all of that means for you, when you think about what brings you the most joy, take a minute, think about it. What brings you the most joy? Make note of it. And let's listen to the rest of Mary's song. Verse 48, Mary's going to start with God's mercy towards her. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Oh, Mary. I I was reading this week, and I never noticed it before, and uh, one of the commentaries I was reading was talking about this. Some 17 to 19 times, depending on how you break it out, Mary describes a different characteristic of God himself, and she describes it not by using the terms that we use like omniscient, but she describes what his omniscience has done in her life. And she says right here one of the things about God that brings her great joy and that grounds her in the gratitude for who he is and what he has done is that he has taken notice of her. He has looked upon her. This is something entirely unique to God. you know that? In no other philosophy or religion in all of history does God actually take notice of his people other than this one. This is something absolutely unique to the God of the Bible. He actually takes notice and concern for his people. And he takes notice of Mary. He takes notice of this young girl from a rural town, 13, 14, 15 years old, in an age and a time when in her land, men would wake up every day and pray and thank God that they weren't Gentiles, slaves, or women. And God says, the stage is set. The time has come. The long-awaited hope is coming. And I've, I've taken notice of you, Mary. You're my girl. History has been playing out, and the stage has been set, and it's come to you. And I've taken notice of you in your humble estate. I've taken notice of you in the place where you are. I've taken notice of all the circumstances that you face. I've even taken notice of what this is going to cause in your life. All the struggle, all the doubt, all the suspicion. But I've taken notice of you. Can you imagine the confidence that Mary has in this and how that would change how she faced the circumstances that she faces? Do you you actually believe this? Do you actually believe that God takes notice of you? Like the psalmist says, before you're ever born, he knows every hair on your head. That God is a gracious and loving God who takes notice of his people. If you actually believed that, how would it change the way you face the things you face this season? Some of you are struggling with jobs, some of you are struggling in marriages, some of you are struggling with addictive sin patterns, some of you are struggling in ways that I don't even know, but what difference would it make if you understood that God has taken notice of you, that he knows, that he has looked upon you. For behold, Mary said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice the long-term view Mary takes of her reputation. You know, for the next 30 years, no one's going to call her blessed. Blessed. I don't know if you understand that when you read that. For the next 30 years, Mary is not going to be blessed among people. She's going to be the one who claimed to be pregnant by a Holy Spirit. Jesus, in fact, in his time on earth, you'll read throughout the Gospels, is accused of being the the son of an adulterer. Pharisees and people in Galilee would actually look at Jesus and say, well, at least we know who our parents are. At least we know where we come from taking shots at Jesus for being one who was born to an adulterer. The next 30 years, Mary's reputation isn't going to be that great, but she understands who God is, who the Lord is, who her Savior is, who the one who has looked upon her and taken notice of her in her low estate. And she says, for generations, I'll be called blessed. Because just after those first 30 years, Mary will indeed, for generations to this day as we stand here in two thousand nine to read her song and tell her story, she will be called blessed because God took notice of her. For he who is mighty, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Mary could write a list, a page long, of all the great things that God has done for her and that brings praise to her heart and to her soul. And let me just encourage you, this season, take note Of God's grace in your life. I think one thing that we're very poor at is taking note of the evidences of God's grace in our life. Mary sings of the mighty things that God has done for her. 14 years old and pregnant, mighty things God has done. Well, He's noticed her, He's called her, He's cared for her, He's given her this child he's given her this responsibility and he's promised to be her God and she's giving birth to the one that will save her from her sins. Mary had a good perspective on who God is and what he is doing in her life in the midst of what on the surface looked like a very difficult circumstance. And for some of us on the surface, there are very difficult circumstances this season. But are we good students of God's grace in our life? I want us to be a people who are good students of God's grace in our lives and, and in the lives of other people around us. Because what we're going to see in Mary's song in just a couple of minutes, and we'll go quickly because it's my favorite part, Mary's praise turns not just to who God is specifically and what He has done for her, but it turns prophetically outward to what God is doing through this child for his people. Mary is a good student of the grace of God in the lives of other people. And I wonder if we became better students of God's grace in our lives, would we become better students of God's grace in the lives of others? And when we struggle to be Envious of what God is doing in other people's lives. Instead, would we become people who can sing and celebrate and worship God's grace in the lives of our friends and family? That's, that's who I want us to be. This was the fruit of the Christmas season on Mary's lips. This was the song of her understanding of who God was to her. Is this yours? What's the fruit of your praise? During the Christmas season, what is it you celebrate? What is it you rejoice in? What is it that brings you joy when you talk about the Christmas season? What is it you brag about? What is it you want everybody to know about? Mary, in the most unlikely turn, is now going to paint one of the greatest pictures of the gospel. Verse 50 her declaration of God's mercy now turns from herself to us. And some of the most difficult, but some of the most gracious words in this entire song, we're gonna see another portrait of the unlikely king, the unlikely warrior, the unlikely savior. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, how has he shown strength with his arm? That's the rhetorical question of the song. How has he shown strength with his arm? Mary's about to unpack God's mercy toward those who stand in awe of him as Lord and as Savior. And it's not going to be what you expect. Verse 51 He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What an unbelievably rich sentence. He has scattered the proud. And the thoughts of their hearts. Get this if you get nothing else. In every circumstance in life, in every situation that you face, the greatest enemy that we face in that moment is our pride. It is our pride. Psalm 16 verse 5 says, listen to this. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord, and be assured he will not go unpunished. If you know your scriptures and you read your scriptures, even the gospels, you'll see the one thing that God comes after more than anything else is our pride. It is the arrogance of our hearts. The, the pride are the, are the self-sufficient ones. The proud ones, the ones who feel like they've got it all put together by the strength of their own hands and the wisdom of their own mind, and they've bought into their own press. They've bought into their own praise, and they actually believe that what they have has come from themselves. The proud are the ones who are being scattered. The proud are the ones who refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon God, their weakness before God, their sinfulness before his holiness. They're the ones that say, I've got it covered. I can fix this. I can do this. I can solve this. I can heal this. And all along they're saying, I'm God. That marriage, I got it. I can fix it. Those kids, I can straighten it out. I can fix that. That problem, I can resolve that. That desire, that need, I can fulfill that. I've got it. I've got it. The proud are those who refuse to acknowledge in their hearts their dependence upon God. And their insufficient nature in light of his grandeur and his majesty. And what Mary sings here is that God in the birth of this baby. In the fulfillment of this promise is scattering the proud, in the imaginations of their hearts. They've bought into their press. They actually believe the things about themselves that their heart has deceived them into believing. And the beauty, what a rich sentence. This word scattered is a word used in the Bible and throughout literature, talking about a troop of of soldiers whose leader has been killed on the battlefield. And they begin to scatter like chicken with their heads cut off, not knowing where to go and what to do because their leader is gone. It's used of sheep in a pasture when their shepherd is killed by a beast or has gotten lost or injured. They're they're sheep. They're helpless. No one to lead them. No one to care for them. No one to protect them. No one to take them where they need to go to be provided for, to be safe. And God is saying, this is what is happening to those who have bought into the press of their own self-sufficiency. They're being scattered. They will be seen for what they are. They will be scattered in the presence of this king. Scattered in the presence of this warrior. Scattered in the presence of this servant to be born to this young girl. Verse 52 says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So here's the crazy thing about our pride. Those who tend to be proud, And we all struggle with pride in different measures and in different ways. But those who tend to wrestle with being proud, self-sufficient, self-dependent, independent, autonomous, arrogant in the imagination of their own hearts, tend to have struggles with control. They tend to have struggles with control. They tend to think that they're their own best savior. And they tend to think that they can control everything around them. And so they sit on the throne of their own life and they try to control everything around them almost always out of fear. If I can just set all of this around my kids, then they'll be this way. I've got it. This is what I'll do and this is how they'll be and this is what I'll get. I can control this thing. If I can just set these kind of restrictions around my spouse, if I can just get him or her to do this and act this way and do this thing, then I'll get them to be like I want them to be. And the crazy thing about those who are determined to sit on the throne of their own life and control the world around them out of a fear of their own insufficiency, they tend to become self-fulfilling prophets. And the very thing that they try to build around them not to happen actually begins to happen. As their own pride and their own desire to rule over their own life creates an environment for the very thing they don't want to happen to actually happen. And the crazy thing is they end up going, look, I told you so. I told you, this is what would happen. But they end up being so arrogant, they can't even see their own fault in it. And Mary is singing the song of the Savior who will come, and he won't cozy up to the proud. He won't pander to the mighty. But those who are determined to live in the self-sufficiency of their own heart and to sit on the throne of their own life, they will be scattered and they will be brought down. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice this, Mary doesn't say the rich he sends away poor. Mary doesn't say the rich are sent away from the Savior poor, but they're sent away empty. Those who Mary is singing about are those who have become satisfied in their own wealth, in their own richness, in their own life. And don't be deceived looking around saying you're not in that category because globally we are some of the wealthiest people that will ever exist. You are in the top 5% of the world's wealthiest, no matter where you are when you sit here right now. And what Mary is singing about are those who have become satisfied in what they have. They've got all the love they need in their family. They've got all the love they need in their spouse. They've got all the money they need in the bank. They've got all the security they need in their job. They're satisfied in themselves, and they have quit pursuing God. They have quit seeking satisfaction in Christ. And Mary sings the song of the Savior is going to send those who are satisfied in themselves away empty. Because in the end, I promise you, I promise you at some point, if it's not now or a year from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it will betray you. Toys will betray you. Jobs will betray you. Bank accounts will betray you. It can never fulfill the longings of the heart. And never experience the depth of mercy and relationship and satisfaction that God has designed for you. And Mary sings this song of the arrogant. The autonomous and the affluent that this Savior scatters and brings low. But on the other hand, the warrior king who comes to serve his people takes what is expected and he flips it upside down. Instead of pandering and cozying up, he brings what is exalted in society and in our hearts down low and he exalts instead the hungry, the humble and the weak. The song that Mary is singing is the song of the gospel that puts an end to the middle class spirit that chokes out the life in our heart and it chokes out the, the life and depth in our soul. See, it's the humble, Mary says, the ones who understand their sinfulness while, while understanding the holiness of God at the same time. It's, it's the humble, those who, who know that, that before God in his presence they have nothing to brag about. It's those who have quit bragging in what they have done and how they have accomplished something. It's those who have quit thinking that all that they have has come from the work of their own hands. And not the grace of God. It's the humble. In Jesus' kingdom. and the new kingdom being brought in through this baby. The humble are the ones who acknowledge that they're needy. That even their good deeds are filthy rags before God. Knowing that in their heart, because of their sin. Even the good things that they do, they do out of a way to get leverage before God, for him to accept them, or leverage with other people. The humble are those who take precedent in this new kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, the powerless are exalted. The mighty, those who want to control their life out of their own self-sufficiency, are brought down, but the powerless are exalted. Exalted. Not those who live under the delusion that if you just try harder or, or turn over another leaf or, or do this differently or set in this thing in place or if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the mighty who are bent on controlling their own life are brought down. But it's those who recognize and acknowledge before God that they're powerless. It's the weak that are exalted, the ones who acknowledge that before God they are spiritually dead that there is nothing that they can do to pull themselves up from the grave. That without the grace and the mercy and the power of God, they are helpless. It's those, the powerless, that are exalted in this kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom of this new warrior and servant, it's the hungry that are satisfied. The rich, they're satisfied in themselves. They're satisfied in their stuff. They think they've got all that they need and they think they have the power and the capacity in themselves to provide anything they think they will ever need from their forward. And they don't pursue God. But in this kingdom, in this new kingdom, in this kingdom of this baby born to this teenage girl, it's the hungry, those who are desperate to be rid of the sin that so plagues their life. Those who are powerless and can admit and acknowledge before God that without him, they are left and destitute to their own sin. It's the humble and the hungry who go away satisfied. It's those who come to God and are desperate to be rid of the sin that so plagues their life, the addiction that is so destroyed, then the thing that is tearing them down. It's those that come to him and say, without you, I can do nothing about this. It's those in this kingdom that find themselves satisfied. But that's a, a humble stance to say that you're hungry, to admit that you have need, to admit that you're dependent upon God for something outside of yourself, to say for the fulfillment and the joy and the freedom that I so desperately want, there's nothing that I can do to actually bring it. Oh God, Help me. That's a humble place to be and that's generally not our game. Hunger is generally not our thing. Our game is I got it. I can fix it. I can do it. And we keep stuffing our souls and cramming bread that can never satisfy into our hearts. And Mary sings the song of the Savior who sends those who are satisfied of themselves and their own sufficiency away hungry. But he satisfies those who can acknowledge their need before him. You see, the ethos of self sufficiency, that middle class spirit that chokes out the life in our heart, can, deceives us into thinking that by our own power and by our own wisdom, there's no place we can't live, no club we can't join, no toy that we can't have. And all along, God laughs. He laughs. Our arrogance and our autonomy and our affluence keep us from admitting our poverty, our hunger our weakness, and ultimately our need for God. And yet, here's the beauty of this song. Here's the beauty of this kingdom that has long been awaited by God's people, but comes in the most unexpected ways. Our only hope, this warrior, this king, this servant, is to trust the king who became poor. That's the beauty of Mary's song. This teenage girl from a rural town gave birth to the king of kings in a feed bin and a cattle shed. He grew up so poor that when his parents dedicated him at the temple, they offered the smallest and the cheapest offering that the law allowed for. He was raised in a poor family in a poor town. He lived a poor life. And as a man on his way to offer his life as a sacrifice for all of God's people, to be the warrior, to defeat the enemies, to inaugurate the kingdom that would last forever, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey ate his last meal with his best friends in a borrowed room, died on the cross for our sins, and was buried in a borrowed grave. But only because of this king who condescended to our place and for our sins became poor and in his poverty and weakness became our warrior who defeated our enemies of Satan's sin and death on the cross, only because of this poor man do you have hope This Christmas season. That's the beauty of Mary's song. The kingdom is not like any kingdom that we could have ever imagined. The king is unlike any king that we could have ever hoped for. It wasn't his might and it wasn't his power that defeated our enemies. It was his humility. And it was his dependence. And it's in his kingdom that it's our weakness and our humility and our hunger are finally satisfied. Our only hope this Christmas season is a baby born to a teenage girl in a feed bin who grew up to be crucified on a Roman cross. Our only hope this season is the story of this baby who chokes out the spirit of the middle class Christmas that robs us of so much joy, so much hope, and so much gratitude. And so this morning, this morning and the rest of this Christmas season, here's what I want you to consider I want you to consider what characterizes your heart this Christmas. Is it joy? Is it a desire to magnify your Lord, your God, your Savior? What characterizes your heart and what causes your heart to rejoice? Oh, by God's grace, by God's grace, this is my prayer for me and my prayer for us. Let it not be our pride. Let it not be our power and let it not be our might and let it not be our riches. as you go through the Christmas season, ask yourself, are you walking humbly before God? Is your heart's deepest desire to make much of God for who he is and what he has done in the season when we all wish we were richer? In the time of the year, that collapses on us with such force the way that Christmas does, and we find ourselves wanting to be someone that we're not and wishing we had what we don't actually have. In the time when we're so tempted to want to be rich and satisfied in ourselves, let us actually be dependent. Let us actually use this time to express our dependence upon God. Does that sound fair? And in the first act of dependence, let us ask him to help us in this. Let me pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you that um, today you have called us together and brought us to yourself. I thank you for once again uh, the opportunity to surrender ourselves to your scriptures and your truth and be read by them. Lord, your, your word reads our heart like nothing else. Your word reads our pride, our self-sufficiency, our arrogance, our autonomy, and our self-satisfaction like nothing else in existence. Thank you for your mercy that lays us bare and does not leave us as we are. And God, I ask that by your spirit and your grace, you change us this Christmas season. I'm asking for your help this morning. Would you give us eyes to see where we have been sufficient in our own pride, where we need to ask for forgiveness, where we need to repent, and where we need to deal with you? Lord, in your grace, show us where we need to be more humble before you. This Christmas season, Lord, let us be brought low before you. Let us experience the joy that comes from acknowledging our powerlessness, our hunger and our humility before you. Let us experience the real joy of the season, maybe for the first time. It's gonna be hard, and we need your help. Everything around us is gonna be calling us to exalt something else other than you. or that this be a season of dependence for your glory and our joy that we would experience the rejoicing in our soul that Mary experienced because of a certainty in who you are and in a humility of soul because we understand who we are in your presence. May we rejoice in you, our Savior. Amen.